0: We're in Isaiah 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5 this morning. So I've entitled this message Christmas Blessings. That's the title of our message. Um, We're going to look at some Christmas blessings today. All right, let's go ahead and, and read through our text. We're starting in Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning, fuel for the fire." Lord, I pray that this ancient prophecy will come to life for us today and that you would help us to be thrilled with the Christmas blessings that Jesus Christ has brought to us and to all those who are willing to bow the knee to him and follow him. So make those blessings rich and real to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we come to this ancient prophecy. It was given about 2,700 years ago. And, of course, when we come to these ancient prophecies that at first glance are a little confusing, we wonder, well, what is this prophecy about? What's it trying to get at? What is it concern? When will it be fulfilled? And there are two clues that we have in our text to help us answer those questions. Two clues. These two clues are going to help us to know who the prophecy is about. And secondly, when will it be fulfilled? So first of all, here's the first clue. It comes in verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Notice that verse 6 starts with the word for... For a child will be born to us. In other words, the blessings that have been enumerated in verses 1 to 5 come to us because of a child. A child that is born, a son that is given. And of course we know who that is. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. So the blessings in verses 1 to 5 are ours because of Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished. So verses 1 to 5 find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now when will these blessings be fulfilled? When will they become ours? Well that's the second clue. The first clue had to do with a child that is born. That speaks about somebody's humanity. He's born into the world as an ordinary baby. But also a son that is given. That speaks about his deity. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. A Son will be given to us. So the Son of God and the Son of Man come together in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find the blessings of verses 1-5 to coming to our experience because of Him. But the second clue is found in the New Testament. So if you want to keep your finger here in Isaiah 9, turn over to Matthew chapter 4. And then turn to verse 12. Matthew 4.12 Matthew writes Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali Now does that ring any bells? We just read about Zebulun and Naphtali back in Isaiah chapter 9 Let's keep reading this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And now he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, Verses 15 and 16 are pretty much a direct quotation of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. So Matthew goes back to Isaiah 9.2 and he says, Isaiah 9.2 was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came into the world and especially when he came into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, try to picture a map of Jerusalem down in the south, straight up. If you followed on a straight line up, you're going to see the Sea of Galilee. And right around the Sea of Galilee, you have the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. The region of Capernaum. Isaiah chapter 9 says that there was gloom for her who was in Zebulun and Naphtali. But God is going to take away that gloom. And Matthew tells us when that took place. It took place when Jesus Christ came into the world. Because he says, those who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Now, in Isaiah 9.2, the prophet says, the people who walk in darkness will see. That's future tense, isn't it? They will see a great light. When Matthew records it, he says, the people who were sitting in darkness saw. That's past tense. So when Isaiah wrote this prophecy down, he was looking forward to a time. They're going to see a great light. When Matthew records the fulfillment of it, he says they already saw it. Isaiah said they're going to see it. Matthew says they've already seen it. So the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-2 came when Jesus Christ came into the world. And he settled up in the region of Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. And he went about doing good healing all who were oppressed of the devil, teaching the people and preaching the word of God, doing miracles and healings and casting out demons, this great light began to shine on all the people. So that's our second clue. Who is this prophecy in Isaiah 9 about? It's about Jesus, the child born, the son given. When would it take place? In his first coming. Not his second coming, his first coming into the world. So this is a gospel prophecy. And I'm calling this message Christmas Blessings because there are four huge blessings in these verses. And they all come to us because Jesus brought them with him when he came into the world. So what are those four blessings in our text? They are light, joy, freedom, and peace. Light, joy, freedom, and peace and peace. Jesus brought those huge amazing wonderful blessings with him when he came into the world. So let's look at each one of those blessings. First one is light. Look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now try to imagine living at the North Pole if you can. I mean it's hard to imagine this, but let's say that they're We can move up to the North Pole, and there's a house built for us right there. Well, from early October until early March, there's no sunlight at the North Pole. There's not even twilight. It's completely pitch dark at the North Pole for about five months in a row. Can you imagine living in a place where you never saw the sun? Never saw any light. If there's any light at all, you've got to bring it with you. You've got to have flashlights, or you've got to have electricity, because there is none. Or try to imagine just living in a cave so you live not at the entrance of a cave but way way back in this cave where there is no light at all Like, pretend you're a bat way back in this cave and you never get to see the light what would it be like to live in a place like that where there is no light at all I try to think about that and I thought okay here are some words that came to my mind confusing dangerous gloomy distressing, uncertain, and cold. (laughs) Those are the words that I would use to describe a place like that. I mean, imagine if you lost something way back in that cave and there's no light and you don't have flashlights. How are you ever going to find what you lost? You're going to be groping around on your hands and knees everywhere. I mean, it would be a horrible existence to live like that. Well, the Bible describes the people in Jesus' day as living in a dark land, sitting in darkness, like they're sitting in the back of this cave, not being able to see anything at all. You know, when it's gloomy, kind of like today, when it's rainy, and it's overcast, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel kind of a a gloomy spirit come over me. And I feel more cheerful when the sun comes out. (laughs) But the, the truth of the Word of God is that all lost people live and walk in darkness. Notice the text here. It says in verse 2, The people who walk in darkness, and then it describes them as those who live in a dark land. That's the condition of sinners throughout the world. They, They walk in darkness and they live in a dark land. Now why is that? Why do they live and dwell in darkness? It's because they're spiritually blind. That's the reason. Not physically blind. They have scales over their eyes; they cannot see the truth. In 1 Corinthians 2:14, Paul says that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him, and he cannot, cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Now we understand what an, an appraiser is, right? When we bought a home, we had to have a home appraiser come, and what was that guy's job? What does an appraiser do? Yeah, he determines the value of the home. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the reason this person can't understand the things of God is because the things of God are spiritually appraised, spiritually valued. And this man down here who is a natural man, that means unregenerate, unsaved, he can't value the things of God the way they should be valued. His heart is wrong, and so he cannot see the true worth of Christ and his kingdom. He's blind to the worth of Christ. In Ephesians 4.17 and 18. Paul says. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. In the futility of their mind. Being darkened. In their understanding. Excluded from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. So Paul describes lost people as, well let's take a look at it again, having a futile mind, a darkened understanding, without God's life, and being ignorance. Ignorance that is in them. They've got a hard heart. So when we talk about someone being spiritually blind, usually darkness or blindness in the Bible stands for error or ignorance. Ignorance. Incapability of true, having true understanding of a particular thing. Isaiah 9 says the whole world was in darkness. They lived in it. They sat in it. They walked in it. People in this condition don't pray like the psalmist in Psalm 119. We just got through reading Psalm 119. It took us seven weeks because it's so long. But verse 34 says... Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Now that's the prayer of a regenerate man, a man who loves the Lord. He prays, God give me understanding that I might observe your law and keep it with all my heart. But a lost person doesn't pray like that. He doesn't have the heart to pray like that. Do you remember Jesus in Luke chapter 10 verse 21 and 22? He said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills or chooses to reveal him. The rest of mankind is in darkness. But there are some that the Son chooses to reveal the Father. They see. Their blinded eyes are opened and they see Christ. They see him. Well, let's let's try to make this plain. Lots of lost, unsaved people can come to church and learn about Jesus. We're not saying they can't do that. They might even have an accurate understanding of his humanity and his deity and the fact that he died on a cross and was an atoning sacrifice. But all that's intellectual knowledge. We're not talking about intellectual knowledge. We're talking about a spiritual appraisal of who Jesus is so that you value him for who he claims to be. Do you see the difference? I can know some information. That's not the same thing as saying... Christ is altogether glorious and I owe him everything I've got because he is so beautiful and worthy. There's a complete difference there. Jesus Christ needs to be revealed to lost people as their ultimate treasure. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6, Paul writes this, even if our gospel is veiled, It's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, Now, that's a long passage there, but I want you to focus on this phrase. The glory of Christ, that comes up in verse 4. The glory of God comes up in verse 6. Paul's emphasizing the fact that the God of this world, no doubt, is Satan. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they're spiritually blind. But God can shine in their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's not just that God helps them to understand intellectually a few facts about himself or his son Jesus Christ, it's that he gives them the ability to see the glory of Christ and the glory of God. And that's completely different. A lost person sees more glory in a dollar bill than they do in the face of Jesus Christ, they don't see his glory. They might come to church, they might think some of these facts are interesting. But to to fall madly in love with Jesus so that you want to follow him and obey him in every detail of your life is just not something they're able to do. Until the Lord shines in their heart this heavenly, spiritual, supernatural light. Now, back in Isaiah 9 it says they're going to see a great light. Those who are sitting in darkness, those who live in a land that is dark, they're going to see a great light. And Matthew says they saw it. They saw a great light. The light would shine on them. Now what is this light that Isaiah is talking about? If they're spiritually blind, what's the light? Jesus. It's Jesus Christ himself. And we know that because of the word of God. John 1 verse 9. John writes... There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He's speaking about Christ there. He's the true light. Jesus said himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice who it is that's not going to be spiritually blinded. That's going to be able to see. It's those who follow Jesus will not walk in darkness. It's not all people. It's those who follow Christ. Or John 12:46, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. The rest of the world does remain in darkness. But the true child of God, the, the believer, his eyes are opened. His, his blinded eyes are open and he can see the beauty and glory of Christ. There's a story told about William Wilberforce. Does that name ring a bell with anybody? He was in Parliament over in England near the end of the 1700s, the beginning of the 1800s. He was a social reformer. He was working for abolition over in the uh, United Kingdom. He was a good friend of William Pitt the Younger. And William Pitt the Younger was the Prime Minister of Britain towards the end of the 18th century. These guys were friends. William Wilberforce, William Pitt, and William Wilberforce was a Christian and he invited his friend William Pitt to come with him to church to hear a great Anglican preacher, his name was Richard Cecil, so they came to service, they heard the preaching of Richard Cecil, and in Wilberforce's own words he wrote in his diary that he felt his soul rise to heaven under the preaching of the word of God, but as they were going out of the the church that day, he looked over at his friend and his friend said to him, I haven't the faintest idea what that man was talking about. Oh. So light had shone into Wilberforce's heart, given him spiritual understanding, and this, his friend was left in darkness. And isn't that odd? How you, one, They can sit next to each other hearing the same message. One can be in darkness and one can have light. Mm. So brothers and sisters, Christmas is the time for us to remember that Jesus Christ has brought light into a dark world, and we are bearers of that light and we are to go and shine that light to all people around us we are to be light bearers because the Holy Spirit the essence of God himself lives within us we are to be like torches so that wherever we go we're going into a dark land into a cave way back in a cave we're going to the North Pole where there's no light and we're to bring the light of Jesus Christ and pray that God will open people's eyes to see Jesus Himself brought this as a Christmas blessing that we would see the truth and love the truth and love Him. The second blessing that's mentioned here is joy. I want you to look back at Isaiah 9 verse 3. Isaiah 9 3 says, You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now the U in this verse is referring to God. It's capitalized. At least the translators believe that it was referring to God. And I believe they're right. But did you notice how many times in this verse he refers to gladness or joy? You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. That's the whole focus of this verse the child that will be born to us and the son that would be given to us is going to bring joy when he comes into the world not only is he going to bring light he's going to bring joy now reminds me of that beautiful christian carol joy to the world the lord has come amen joy to the world christ brings joy with him Or it also reminds me of Luke 2 verse 10 when the angels were watching their flocks by night and the angels appeared to them. And the angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Well what's this joy about? For today in the city of David, Bethlehem, there has been born for you, shepherds, lowest of the low, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So Jesus, when he comes into the world, he brings joy. And not just any joy, great joy. So Christmas should be a time of rejoicing for the people of God. Because Christ has brought joy into the world. Now, how does Isaiah describe this joy in verse 3? He says, They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. This is harvest joy. Now we might not be able to relate to that because we're not farmers. But Israel was an agrarian society. Most of them were farmers. They, they grew their own food. Now, if you're a farmer, the time when you really rejoice is when you harvest your crop. Because you've been working all year long for this day. And you're bringing in the harvest of all those months of work. And now you can sell those crops and you can have money for supplies money for seed for the next year and you've got all these crops that you can live on now you've got food that's going to last you for the coming year so harvest time was a time of great joy parties celebrations but that's not the only way he speaks about this joy he says as when men rejoice when they divide the spoil it's not just harvest joy it's victory joy He's talking here about battle. When two armies go into battle and one of them conquers the other army and kills them. And all of their spoil is all over the ground. So there's horses left over and camels and food and drink and clothing and blankets and money. It's everywhere. And they just go and pick it up off the ground. They're being enriched. They're, they're getting a treasure from their victory in battle. So when, when Isaiah tried to describe the joy that this child who would be born to us and this son who would be given to us would bring into the world, he thinks of the two greatest times of rejoicing in an Israelite's life. It's the time of the harvest and the time of the ba- uh, victory in battle. That's why Luke 2.10 says it's great joy. It's not just a little mealy-mouthed little joy. It's great joy because it has to do with eternal realities. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be made full. He says when he was praying to his father in John 17, verse 3, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Isn't that interesting? Jesus' joy is to be in us. It's not just us having a little bit of joy. It's Jesus' joy coming out from inside out. And that's a whole different kind of joy. Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 7.4, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. So even affliction didn't stop this joy from being produced in his life. Now I want to ask you this morning, have you experienced joy? Jesus's joy, have you experienced that before? Have you ever experienced the joy of your sins being forgiven? Receiving everlasting life and being reconciled to God? Well that of course happens at the very beginning of your Christian life. But have you gone on to experience the joy of knowing that your God is sovereign And that he's working all things together for your good. That he's for you and not against you. And that he is going to complete the good work that he began in you. Have you experienced that kind of joy? That's that's not just a giddy happiness. That's something that comes from the very center of your being. Remember Jesus talked about rivers of living water? That's what this joy. It comes as an inward river that expresses itself in various times in your life, and it is available to us even in affliction. It it can be present. It can be experienced in our lives. So joy, light, and joy are blessings from Jesus Christ. They're Christmas blessings. A third one is freedom, and we find that in verse four. Freedom. Again, Isaiah is addressing God. For you, God, shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. He's saying God is going to break the yoke, the staff, and the rod. Now let's think about what those three things are. A yoke. Again, we don't live as farmers, but if you were a farmer, you would understand that a yoke is that wooden block that connects one ox to the other one. So it's, it's something that causes those oxen to be held captive to do the will of the master. They can't get away, they can't run off, they're bound now to each other to do the will of the master. And notice then in verse 4 this yoke is called a burden. You shall break the yoke of their burden. So the yoke that he's talking about is the burden that has been placed on the Israelites. God's going to break that yoke. Okay, secondly, a staff. He said God is going to break the staff that's on their shoulders. Think of a person with this wooden pole on his shoulders, carrying buckets of water on each side, walking from the well back to town. Can you get that picture? But water's heavy. And if you've got this wooden pole on your back, it's biting into your neck. It's very painful, and it makes your life a living hell, right? Until you can get that thing off of your neck. The Bible says that God's going to break the staff that's on their shoulders. And then the third thing is the rod. The rod of their oppressor. God's going to break the rod of their oppressor. A rod is, think of a billy club or a baseball bat when the... (laughs) When the robber comes into your house at night, you're ready. You've got the billy club or the baseball. You're, you're going to go after that man. The, the, the rod of the oppressor was what like the slave driver would use to keep the slaves in line. He would beat them with it. Maybe he didn't have a whip, but he had a rod. So it was, a, it was an instrument to bring punishment and cruelty upon other people to get them to do what you wanted them to do. Isaiah said, God's going to break the rod. He's going to break the staff. He's going to break the yoke. And what he's talking about is God's going to free his people from something. He doesn't tell us exactly what that is in this verse, but we know what the answer is from the New Testament. We were born slaves to sin. We were children of the devil, according to Ephesians chapter 2. We were bound to the world system that we were born into. And when you become a child of God, God breaks the He delivers his people. He sets them free. He rescues them from the power, the dominating power of sin that holds them captive. And from the world, the flesh, the devil, he sets them free and he enables them to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit to leave those things behind and to embrace newness of life. So when Jesus Christ comes into the world, he not only brings light and joy, but he brings freedom. Freedom from sin. Jesus says, well let me go back to this phrase here at the end of verse 4. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. Do you remember the battle of Midian? Do you remember the na- uh, man by the name of Gideon in the Old Testament? He fought the Midianites. And the description of the Midianites was that they were like locusts. Have you ever seen pictures of locusts? They make the sky dark, you can't even see anything but locusts, they're everywhere, you can't count them. It's like, how many are there? I don't know, thousands and thousands, millions probably of these locusts. That's how it describes the Midianite army. It says they were innumerable. And God chose Gideon and He said, I want you to go up and fight against the Midianites. And Gideon originally went up with 32,000 men, and God says, no, that's too many. Because if you go up with 32,000 men, you're going to brag about how you overcame the Midianites. So we're going to make a little bit of a change here. And through a bunch of series of events, God whittled it down from 32,000 to 300. And he says, I want those 300 men to go against these locusts, (laughs) this innumerable army. And instead of carrying spears and bows and arrows and knives, guess what they got to carry? Pitchers and torches and trumpets. Trumpets and torches, that's what their weapons were against, 300 against an innumerable army. And they routed the army because God's power was upon them. And the whole thing was to tell us, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's what it means here, that God is going to break the rod and the yoke and the staff, just like he did at the battle of Midian. It's going to be God's power that sets his people free, not their own power. That's the point. And that's why Jesus could say in John eight thirty-six, if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. That's why Paul would write in Galatians five, verse one, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Maintain the freedom that He gave you. Don't give it up. Don't give in. Maintain that freedom. Paul wrote in Romans 6.14, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, you're under grace. The power of grace is working in your life. So sin can't dominate over you. Now you can let it dominate over you for a, a period, but you don't need to. There's no reason you have to surrender to sin in your life. Sin shall not be master over you. So Jesus Christ has set us free from the dominion of sin and Satan. This is another one of the Christmas blessings that we have. Light, to see spiritual truth. Joy, to enjoy these truths. And then freedom, to walk in these truths. To walk in holiness and walk in righteousness before the Lord. Let's look at the final blessing here. It's in verse 5. And the final blessing is peace. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and every cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Now he gives us images from the battle. And he says that there are a couple of things here. Every boot of the booted warrior and every cloak rolled in blood. These are, the, these are the results of warfare, aren't you? If you go through a battlefield, you're going to see people there, and there's boots on the soldiers, and there's uniforms on the soldiers. They might be lying dead on the battlefield, but you see all these boots and these, these uh, uniformed soldiers. And what Isaiah is describing is that every accoutrement of warfare is going to be burned up. It's going to be for burning. It's going to be for, for fuel for the fire. In other words, these boots that were used in warfare are going to be burned. The, the uniforms of these soldiers, these cloaks that are rolled in blood, they're going to be thrown into a heap and burned up. How come? Don't need them anymore. Don't need them anymore because there's not going to be any more warfare. War is over and now peace reigns. That's the idea of this picture in verse 5. It's what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 2 verse 4. They're going to hammer their swords into plowshares. And they're going to hammer their spears into pruning hooks. So they're going to take these instruments of war and make them instruments by which they can harvest their crops. Because they're not going to need those weapons any longer. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. So when Messiah comes, not only does he bring light and joy and freedom he brings peace that's the idea from verse 5 and that's what we have in Luke 2 verses 13 and 14 suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased so there's peace among men that is brought because of the birth of this baby into the world Jesus Christ brings peace. Now he brings peace between man and God. He brings peace within his own soul. And he brings peace between man and man. All three phases of peace. Let's think about each phase. First of all, peace with God. Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace, peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, peace with God comes by being justified through faith. So if a person is not justified through faith, what does that tell us? There's no peace with God, is there? And what do you describe? How do we we describe a situation where there is no peace between man and God? We'd call that enmity with God, wouldn't we? That person is not a friend of God. He's not reconciled to God. He's an enemy of God. And that's exactly what Paul says later in that very same chapter in Romans 5 and verse 10. He says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. So the lost person is an enemy of God. They don't have peace with God, but the believer has been brought into friendship and reconciliation. He is, he's thrown down his weapons of warfare and he's sued for mercy. He's waved the white flag. He's surrendered to Jesus Christ and there's this beautiful peace now in the relationship between the sinner and God. So peace with God. But there's also the peace of God in the Bible. Not just peace with Him. That's an objective reality. but peace, The peace of God is not objective, it's subjective. It's something that you actually experience within your own soul. We we read about this in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, Be be anxious for nothing. Don't Don't worry. Don't be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So this is the kind of peace, let's call it tranquility of soul. That we're able, instead of fretting and worrying and jumping around in our minds and just going berserk because of the situations, we're able to center on God and He's able to just calm us and remind us that He's in charge of the situation, that He's working all things together for good, that we don't have to worry because God's in charge. That's the peace of God that we can actually experience. So we have peace with him objectively. We have the peace of God subjectively. And the third kind of peace in the Bible is peace between man and man. That's the kind of peace that we just read about in Luke chapter 2. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is the kind of peace Paul was writing about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He writes there, For Christ himself is our peace, who made both groups... Jew and Gentile. He took both of those groups. Into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So that in himself. He might make the two. Into one new man. Thus establishing peace. See peace between man and man. Now think about. What it would have been like. In the first century. For saved Jews. And saved Gentiles. To be in the same church. That would have been. It would have been weird. It would have been stressful. It would have been conflicting because all their lives Jews were taught: you don't associate with Gentiles, you don't eat with them, you don't talk with them, you stay separate from them. And wait a minute! All of a sudden, they're in the same church. They're worshiping God together in the same place. That had to be really, really strange for them. I bet it was very difficult for saved Jews to to throw down their their biases and say, okay. Christ has made peace between these two groups and it's okay for me to be with them and to worship with them. So here's racial peace. Two groups that were in conflict with each other and now they're at peace with each other. We see so much racial hostility in the United States even now, don't we? There's, there, it just It's on the news constantly. It seems like it's never going to go away. And we think, is there any answer? Is there any solution for this racial unrest that we have here in the United States? And the answer is the child who would be born to us and the son who would be given to us. He makes peace between these various nationalities, these various groups of of men. And brings them together and makes peace between them. Because if my black brother loves Jesus and I love Jesus... Hey wait a minute, we're part of the same family. We wrap arms around each other and we love each other because we have the same father. And we're brothers and sisters now. I think that is the ultimate answer to racial unrest and racial hatred and conflict in the world. We, We need to both surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and find peace there. And then we're going to have peace with each other. Jesus Christ alone can reconcile us to God. He alone can give us peace within our souls when we're stressed out. And He alone can reconcile us to other people that we've been at enmity with. So these are the Christmas blessings that Jesus brings. Light opens the eyes, lets us see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Joy, joy for salvation, joy for who God is and His nature and attributes. And then freedom. Ongoing freedom from the dominating power of sin to crush us and to rule us and to oppress us. He breaks the yoke. He breaks the staff. He breaks the rod. He sets us free. And now it's our job to walk in that freedom that He's given to us. And then the last one. He gives us peace with Himself, within our own heart, and with other people. So brothers and sisters, this morning I want you to do one thing. We're going to break up again into little groups and we're going to talk to each other about this. And I want you to share with somebody else this morning which one of these four Christmas blessings you really would like to experience more in your life. Is there one of those four, light, joy, freedom, or peace, that you really desire to experience more in your life? Let's just confess that to each other. And pray for each other this morning that we will experience these things in a greater way.